Well, we can turn back to um, a passage read from Mark, and we can read again verses three and nine of chapter four, verses three to nine of chapter fourteen. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I think it's important when we consider this incident uh, to set the scene. Because Mark does not place it in its chronological order. If we turn to John chapter 12, we find the chronological order. For the same incident is described in John 12. And in John 12, we are told that it happened on the day before Palm Sunday. So that tells us that this incident took place on the Sabbath. Palm Sunday was obviously a Sunday. And if this took place the day before Hat, then obviously it was a Saturday, which was the Jewish Sabbath. So actually, here we have an example of how to spend the Sabbath. Don't we? Here were the disciples of Jesus, and they were in the house of Simon, the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I mean, no doubt they had been to the synagogue that day. Where the synagogue they were at, we have no idea, no, no idea of knowing. It would have to be within a Sabbath day's journey, of course. But then we are told that Bethany was a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. So it is quite possible that she had, they had gone to a synagogue in Jerusalem or perhaps to one in Bethany itself. But anyway, what a beautiful way to keep the Sabbath, isn't it? Having fellowship together with Jesus. So that's part of the scene. Second part of the scene is, it's the house of Simon. It's not really the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Who was Simon? Well, all we're told about him is that he was a leper, which means, obviously, that he wasn't now a leper. <coughs> that he had, um, for some of time, been healed. 
And I think it's quite reasonable to suggest that Jesus healed him. But he was one of the many lepers that Jesus healed. And that was through that particular healing that the family came to know Jesus. I think that's quite a reasonable suggestion to make. And there they are. This family in Bethany had seen lots of miracles, hadn't they? wonder which one was the greatest. I mean, they had seen Simon cured of leprosy. They had seen Lazarus raised from the dead. Could there be greater miracles than that? Well, there are at least four greater miracles than that that took place in this particular family. And what could these four miracles be? That the four of them had been regenerated. That's Simon, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus had all been regenerated. If we had met Simon and said to him, Simon, what's the most important thing that's happened to you? Was it when you were healed of your leprosy? He would say, no, it wasn't. That was certainly a wonderful thing, but it wasn't the most important thing that happened to me. The most important thing that happened to me was I was given a clean heart. And I got that from Jesus. If we'd ask Lazarus, was that resurrection from the dead the best thing that ever happened to you? He replied, no, it wasn't. The best thing that ever happened to me was I met Jesus. He didn't just give me physical life for a few years, a kind of extension to my earthly journey. He gave me spiritual life, life that will last forever. It's an extraordinary household, wasn't it? A household full of miracles. And you know, if we don't experience the miracle of regeneration, it doesn't actually matter what other miracles we experience. At least 5,000 people participated in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And as far as we know, it didn't do any spiritual good to any of them. And it won't do them any good today for them to recall that they were once the recipients of a great miracle. We want amazing things to happen to us, don't we? I mean, that's life. We always want some amazing thing to happen to us. What's the most amazing thing that can happen? is to be born again. You know, we can make it very complicated, being born again. And we can delve into discussions about how spiritually dead we are and all that kind of thing. And after having prolonged discussions about it, we're not any the wiser. 
What do we have to do? That's the real test, isn't it? What do we have to do with regard to the gospel? We've not to discuss it. We've not to analyze it. We can do that after we've done something. The first thing we have to do is obey it. When the gospel says to us, doesn't it? Jesus says to us, it is an offer, but it's not an offer in the sense of take it or leave it. Jesus offers to us new life. And he says to us, you'll get it if you trust in me. If you repent of your sins and trust in me. And that's the real crux, isn't it? It doesn't matter whatever else happens to life in life to us if this doesn't happen. If we don't respond to the gospel. This family would have had their reasons for responding to it. Circumstantial ones. Simon could say, Jesus healed me. Therefore I'll trust in him. The children could say, Jesus healed our father. Therefore we'll trust in him. But these circumstantial things are, in a certain sense, not the point. The point is that Jesus offers himself. And he offers himself to all of us. Right now, freely. And he offers himself to us as the Savior. Savior of our souls. And he offers himself to us as our Lord. The Lord to be obeyed, of course. But also the Lord who takes care of us. Because that's what our Lord was in the ancient world. So have you had the miracle? You may get cured of leprosy at some stage. Who knows? You won't experience being raised from the dead. Not until the great day itself. But even if you don't have them in this life, that doesn't stop us having the greatest miracle of all. New heart. And if we've got one, We should be amazed, shouldn't we? None of us discover Jesus because we happen to be brighter than anybody else. We didn't discover him because we're more sensible than anybody else. We discover him because he captured our imagination our hearts. Just fills our vision. 
trust Jesus. So it's been a wonderful gathering here, winter in this house in Bethany. As the family and Jesus and his disciples had their meeting. It wasn't the first time they had done it. That was getting close to being the last one. This is the last Sabbath that Jesus would spend before his death. And that makes the conversation during it rather sad. But anyway, we'll think about that. Of course, another question here. Why did Mark and Matthew move the story to here? I mean, Mark doesn't say in verse Three, that it happened after verse 2. He just says as he starts verse 3 that while he was at Bethany, at some stage during his time in Bethany, this incident happened. Why has Mark moved it to here? Well, apart from answering, saying that God guided him to do it. But God works rationally through people's minds. So why has Mark moved it to here? I think the answer is obvious. He's contrasting Mary with Judas. They're the two central figures of what's happening in this incident. what they did and what happened to them as a result. What happened to Mary is incredible. What happened to Judas is disastrous. And it all came from this meal, this gathering they had in the house in Bethany. Just wants to think of four things. The action of Mary. What can we say about that? That's in verse 3. Then there's the assessment of the disciples. That's in verses 4 and 5. Then there's the appreciation of Jesus in verses 6 to 8. And lastly, there's the announcement he gives in verse 9. And after that, three applications. The action of Mary as she takes this flask of ointment. First of all, it's public, isn't it? She doesn't 
just try and get a one-to-one -one situation. Mary may have been a very private person, I don't know. But she wasn't a private person when it came to Jesus. She did it in public. Friend of all these august disciples. Well, they weren't that august at that particular time. But, but they were going to be. There they are, the apostles. The ones who are going to be the leaders of the church. The ones who, in a certain sense, are the closest to him because they're being taught by him in a very special manner. Surely she should wait until they are out of the room before she does something. But no, she doesn't. She does it publicly. And I think Mark is telling us that. She did it so others would see what she thought of Jesus. It was also very personal. She didn't ask anybody to help her. She didn't say, well, you come with me, I'll do it. She just went ahead herself and did it. There was something within her that compelled her to do it. It was very personal. It was also very costly. Quite often it's um, not beneficial to listen to moaners. But on this occasion it is beneficial to listen to them because they actually tell us the value of what she gave. The disciples, as they complain, they say it was worth 300 denarii. A denarii was a, the pay a person got for a day's work. So this particular flask of ointment was worth 300 days of work. If you take the Sabbath out of it, out of every given year, which they wouldn't be working, of course, you've almost got here their annual salary. So she poured on Jesus' head something that would have cost the average person their annual salary. So all you have to do is work it out yourself. What is your annual income? Mary poured it on the head of Jesus. Cost it a lot. And it's, it was pertinent, pertinent to her as well, wasn't it? It was something that she needed. I mean, why did she have this in the house? We've, we've all we've heard this before, the explanation that's given as to why she had it in the house. This exceptionally valuable piece of ointment. She had it in the house because there was nobody else to keep it safe. People in those days, there were no banks that they could go down to and place their life savings in them. 
There were no companies offering safe safes and other forms of security that you could put in your precious items. The safest place was to keep it at home, and if you were so inclined, to bury it in the back garden if you wanted. And that's where a lot of people put their treasures. And she had this treasure at home, and she had it so that she could sell it when she became an old woman. And she gives it all to Jesus. There's a real sense in which she's saying to Jesus here, I don't have to worry about my future because you can take care of it. Is she not saying that? When she pours this flask on his head. I don't know if Martha had the equivalent of this in her house. She may have done. If she did have it, she didn't do it. As a matter of fact, neither she nor Lazarus, who both had reasons for doing this, for doing something, didn't do it. But she wanted to do something Something special for Jesus. So she gave him. She gave to him what she would regard as something very special. Search in vain throughout the Old Testament for a command that says, you shall take your flask of ointment and pour it on the head of the Messiah. But she... Because she loved him, she wanted to give him something. Something that would be only for him. Can we do that? Is there something that we have that we can give only to him? got two things. We've got our hearts and we've got our time. Mary gave her best to Jesus. And in doing that, she sets the standard. We're not being told this because it was unique. Although it probably was unique in some way. But we are being told it. Because it pleased Jesus. It really pleased him. Here, 
on the last Sabbath that he experienced on earth before his death was someone that pleased him. We're told that God rests on the Sabbath. We're told in one of the Psalms that he rests among his people. What did the heart of Jesus feel when Mary did this? It's a wonderful thing to please Jesus, to sense his pleasure. I know what Jim Elliot says in one of his books. Not Jim Elliot, sorry, but the Eric Liddell. So I know what he said. When I run, I sense his pleasure. Ever sense the pleasure of Jesus? That's Mary's action. Then there's the assessment of the disciples. And we have to remember that these men have been following Jesus for three years. They've had the best of examples. This is not day one of their disciples. It's almost day 1,000. But how do they react? I mean, Mark doesn't tell us, but John tells us that Judas was the instigator of all this. But it speaks volumes that the other disciples were quite prepared to follow him. They were annoyed. Imagine being annoyed about something that pleased Jesus. But there they were, really annoyed. Not only were they annoyed, but they were critical. Of course, perhaps if we had been there, we'd have contributed to the argument and just said to them, well, have you given anything to the poor today? I mean, the Sabbath was a day for showing good to the poor. We're told that by Isaiah. It's a very appropriate day to speak about giving to the poor. But it's fairly obvious from the way they're speaking here that they had no intention of giving anything to the poor. They wanted Mary to give to the poor. But they said it to her after she had done her actions. Even then she couldn't do it from their kind of warped perspective. But there they are critical and calculating. They've just worked out how much the poor have lost. Whereas it doesn't look as they're going to do anything to relieve the the needs that the poor had. And of course what makes it all worse 
is that they phrase it all in religious language. <coughs> Pious criticism. Why are they doing this? Why is there, are their hearts in this terrible state of being totally unable to recognize that somebody is pleasing the Lord? Well, what have these disciples been doing in recent days? And perhaps not even in recent days, but for even three years. They've spent the time not listening to Jesus. Isn't that right? He's told them repeatedly he's been up to Jerusalem to die. They have told him repeatedly he's not going to die. The main point of his mission at this moment, they're in total disagreement with it. Instead, as we know, they're full of imagination that they're going to be somewhere up the top of the ladder in the new kingdom that's round the corner. So the reason why they don't think like Jesus is because they haven't been listening to Jesus. And it's not always the case when we have wrong perceptions. That when we take our minds away from the Word of God, what's going to govern our thinking? The only thing that will govern it then is our own assessment. And sadly, that's what these disciples did. I mean, think about them. John, the apostle of love. Peter, the man who, who thought he would never deny Jesus. And think about each of them. But here they are, indignant with Mary. a warning, isn't it? And then there's the appreciation of Jesus in verses 6 to 8. And we can see in his appreciation or his defense of her you know, what words to hear from the mouth of Jesus on his final Sabbath. Leave it alone. Why do you trouble her? He reveals his evaluation. They had given theirs 300 denarii. He gives his a beautiful thing. 
I wonder why he thought it beautiful. Only suggestions, of course, but it was beautiful because it was an expression of love. But behind that, Jesus could see behind that. Where's her love coming from? Why has it been expressed in this way? And he saw in the activity of Mary the beautiful work of the Holy Spirit. as she poured out her heart at the same time as she poured out her flask. To him it was beautiful. A cracked flask lying on the floor was the evidence to him of great beauty. He knew her heart. And he knew why she did it. He also knew why the disciples said what they said. And he told them, didn't he? You can give to the poor whenever you want. That's a rebuke. That's not information. They already know they can do that. But he's just saying to them, you should do it. But he doesn't say to them, you should do it instead of something spontaneous. There's constructions, commands in the Old Testament to help the poor. But they cannot be allowed to take the place of an of a a spontaneous expression of love. So he rebukes them. Remember, it's his last Sabbath. And then he gives his assessment, we might say. In addition to the evaluation, he gives his assessment She says she has done what she could. He doesn't say she has done what she should. Does he? She has done what she should. Would have been quite straightforward. What should she have done? Well, maybe given to the poor. But he says about her, she has done what she could. She has done what she should. That could be quite legalistic. She has done what she could. That's an expression of personal liberty. She gave 
in line with what she had. That what she has done, what she could, means, isn't it? When Jesus, she saw in, he saw in Mary, didn't he? A kind of mirror of himself. She did what she could. After all, that's what he did. He did what he could. It's a challenge to us. Not whether we do as we should, but do as we could or can. And then he reveals that he knows why she did it. He understands her perceptiveness. Remember, this is last Sabbath. Where is he going to be next Sabbath? In a tomb. And he says about Mary, She knows that. And he says about her, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You know, on this final Sabbath of Jesus' earthly journey, there's only one person in this room thinking about his death. And that's Mary. Her heart is in tune with his heart. And she tells, it's not just her extravagance, her spiritual extravagance, but there's also her spiritual intelligence. Of all the people in all the world, she's the one who realizes He's about to die. And he's going to die for her and for countless others. You know, Jesus had two anointings. He didn't need either of them. There's an anointing by Mary and there's the anointing by Joseph and Nicodemus. And the reason why they're getting anointed is so because people thought corruption is coming. And as Peter says in the day of Pentecost, Jesus saw no corruption. But the fact that he doesn't need them doesn't mean that they didn't please him. I mean, what does Jesus need from any of us? He doesn't need anything. But when we do something for him, it really pleases him. 
that Paul reminds his readers, we are to walk in a life that pleases the Lord. And then there's the announcement there in verse 9, that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, and that's in Europe, Asia, America, Australia, Africa, India, wherever the gospel is declared in the whole world, it will be, this incident will be mentioned. It's nice to be where our prediction is fulfilled, isn't it? Because that's where we are this morning. This prediction by Jesus has once again been fulfilled. As people are thinking about what Mary of Bethany did. Why will her response be mentioned? Everywhere. As far as I know, it's the only one that's given this kind of description in the Bible. So why will it be mentioned everywhere? And I think the answer is fairly obvious. Hers was the ideal response. Give, give with pleasure. But give as you can. No attempt to hide her love or her devotion was there. Not the slightest inkling of her being a secret disciple. Not a slightest inkling of her being reticent to express her love for her Savior. She's a real challenge. couple of applications. Three, actually. First one is, how much do we think Jesus is worth? That is a question, isn't it? How much do we think he's worth? We know what Mary thought he was worth. She didn't start with the item at the bottom of her possessions. She started with the one at the top. That tells us how much she thought he was worth. How much do we think Jesus is worth? Second one is, how sweet is our worship to Jesus? I mean, the sacrifices in the Old Testament are sometimes referred to, as far as God is concerned, as a sweet-smelling savor. Well, here's our New Testament example of a sweet-smelling savor. It was very sweet to Jesus, wasn't it? So sweet, 
He is king of the universe, arranges for every one of his disciples to hear about it. You know, he's never forgotten it. He never forgets anything, I know that. But before his mind, there are the things that were, are sweet to him. And devotion is sweet to Jesus. Expressions of devotion. And the last question, or last challenge is, what do we have to do in a situation to give a clear witness to his death? Here she was in a room of people who didn't want to hear about his death. She did something that made sure they all heard about it. a question that comes to us. What do we do in a situation that causes everyone in the presence of us to think about his death? Because she did. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks for the grace that worked in the life of Mary. But we know that that grace is not limited to what, to her, or even to what she did. We can imitate her by giving something to you that really pleases you. Lord, help us to show by what we do, that you are number one in our lives. So Lord, remember us and bless us for your own name's sake. Amen.